0: Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast to help you scale
1: your Shopify store into a money-making machine. Your host is Nick Truman. He's a Shopify expert and the CEO of JustAskParker.com, a global specialist marketing agency for Shopify owners. Nick will be sharing his knowledge and interviewing the experts to help you thrive and build a business that makes you money. For exclusive offers, bonus
0: content, and weekly episode reminders, join our mailing list at winningwithshopify.com
1: now sit back relax and enjoy the show here's your host nick truman hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the winning with shopify podcast as you probably just heard on our fancy new intro although it's not so new anymore but i am still enjoying it and i've only had two complaints about going on about the intro too much so i'll take that as a as a good success uh, from our listeners for those who haven't tuned in before, my name's Nick, I've been hosting the podcast for quite a while, and we're currently in the middle of a series called Nailing It for Your Customers. And when I say middle, I actually mean end. Today is the last episode on this series. But what's been really interesting is I've actually had more feedback, more engagement, and we've had more listens and downloads of the podcast as well in this series, than any of our previous series which tells us a lot so we're going to be doing more content like this the whole purpose of this series and if you haven't caught the previous episodes definitely go back and listen to them but the whole point of this is to be talking about how you guys can be a customer first shopify store because there's always that uh, food chain as i like to call it that if you do stuff well for your customers they spend money and then you can spend that money on all the rest you can invest it in growth you can spend it on staff better products uh, enjoying your life and eventually hopefully into retirement as well which uh, many of us are quite far away from at the moment so to finish things off on a massive high we've got a really good friend with us of last week's guest so i highly recommend going back and listening to that if you haven't already but i'm i'm delighted to be joined by Kyle who is the founder of American Provenance Kyle Welcome to the show. Thanks Nick, great to be here, I appreciate it. Great stuff, Well, it's good to have you with us. And as we always do, before we dive in, do you wanna give us a quick overview, a little bit about you and a lot about your business?
0: Absolutely, so the long and short of it, as you mentioned, I started a company called American Providence. And what we do at American Providence, we're actually a manufacturer of natural personal care and wellness products. Uh, those products being primarily intended for men. So if you think about it, we make a lot of deodorants, body wash, shampoos, beard balms, beard oils, aftershaves, hair pomades, lip balms, gift sets, all kinds of great stuff for men's grooming. And kind of the story or the inspiration behind the brand, I'm actually a former middle school and high school science teacher. And one of the things that I never was uh, told in any of my teacher education programs is in the middle school environment, those kids stink I mean, they smell god-awful. Kids who are going through puberty um, have all kinds of stuff going on. So in the middle school environment, you've got kids with backpacks, shoes, sporting equipment, lunches, and just general BO. And those, <laughs> classrooms, <laughs> those classrooms are very, very ripe. And one of the things that, of course, these kids and their parents do, they recognize right away that when these kids are going through puberty, uh, some funky stuff starts happening. So they buy all kinds of body sprays and perfumes and colognes to kind of cover up that stench. Uh, The unfortunate part about that is most of those conventional products, and everyone knows what I'm talking about, are comprised of all kinds of harsh chemicals. So for me personally, I remember one day walking down my hallway and just walking through this gross chemical fog.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly. I'm just getting flashbacks (laughs) of when I was at school about 15, 20 years ago. Like it's just, it's all coming back to me. But yeah, no, completely with you. It's a very
0: visceral memory. A lot of folks can relate to it, but you know, <laughs> through, this, uh, through this chemical fog, and I can actually feel my throat start to constrict. And I thought, wow, there is something in that body spray that's really noxious. Yeah. And uh, I grabbed one of the canisters and I looked at the back panel and having multiple science degrees and years in the classroom, there were only a handful of ingredients that I could readily recognize. And I thought, if I don't know what these chemicals are, chances that my kids or their parents have any idea is slim to none. Uh, So right there on the spot, I designed this project where I told all the kids, hey, tomorrow, bring in a personal care product. We're going to do the research. We're going to find out what all these chemicals are, why they're in these products. And then tell you what, I'm going to teach you how to make your own without any of this stuff. Nice. And yeah, that quickly became the most popular project that I had put together throughout my entire teaching career. I had kids that I wouldn't have in class for another year or two that were approaching me before school. Hey, Mr. LaFont, are we going to do the Diora Project? Absolutely. Uh, If you guys are interested, we're going to do it. And then, you know, every year I'd make a surplus of stuff. So I'd be modeling for my kids how to do these experiments and these projects. And with the surplus, I would give it away to my friends and family. And it seemed like every year, yeah, every year I had folks coming back at me and saying, hey, this is great stuff. This is better than the stuff that I'm buying right now at the grocery store, at the pharmacy, wherever else you may have something pretty special here. And that really got the wheels turning. And back in 2015, we actually launched the company from a renovated machine shed on my family's fourth generation dairy farm here in Wisconsin and kind of took off ever since. We celebrated six years this past year. We've now moved into a much larger, more industrial facility. We still do all of our own in-house manufacturing. And at this point, you can find our products on over 4,000 shelves nationwide here in the States. Uh, We've got some really nice retail partners. And then of course, we do a ton of sales online through both our own website, which is on the Shopify platform, through Amazon and a number of other e-com platforms as well. So yeah, for us, the sky's the limit and we're kind of at that inflection point of this exponential growth. So I think the next two, three years are going to be really exciting in terms of where this company goes and uh, even reaching some of our international customers.
1: I love the fact there's so many key elements in that story. The story of where the brand and business came from, from actually you saw the best way to start any business. You saw a problem you realize the solution. It was actually just a case of almost, I use the word loosely, but commercializing that that solution to that problem right the way through to it. sounds like you actually completely repurpose your family's old, you know, where you guys used to manufacture the products. It's, yeah. I think there's so many golden elements in there. I won't ask yet, but we will come on later to how that story plays out on website marketing, how you guys bring that across given the limitations of pixels on a screen, that kind of thing. But just, just before we do, I I mentioned this before we hit record. I'm fascinated by the name as well. And I don't often ask people where the names come from because some of the guys we interview, like we had a company on that were called Curtains and you can guess what they sold. (laughs) They sold (laughs) Curtains and their website was curtains. I think .co.uk or .com or something. What's behind the name for you guys?
0: Sure, American provenance. It's kind of a combination of a few things. Number one, since we're based here in the States, of course, there's a lot of patriotism. So basically we realized that right away and we thought, you know, looking at other products, anything that uh, tended to include the word American really sold. It really captivated folks. So we thought, hey, we have to have that element in our name. And the other thing, which was kind of self-serving, when I'm going to retail partners, be it grocery stores, pharmacies, independent markets, wherever else, a lot of times when they're buying products, those price guides, those product books, they're all still listed alphabetically. So if Mm. your company name, if your brand name starts off with the letter A, you're going to be one of the first companies that they see. And a lot of times, yeah, a lot of times these buyers, they're really short on time. So if they can find something quickly and easily, they're going to buy it. So for us in all these cosmetic buying catalogs and personal care buying catalogs, we're one of the first companies you see as soon as you open up that catalog. So there was kind of a a self-serving, recognizing that these catalogs are still alphabetical. That's where we wanted to be. then the second term, provenance. So this is kind of a long story, but a good one, actually. Um, I'm a huge fan of public broadcasting. Mm. Here in the States, we have a a nationwide PBS system, which basically showcases all kinds of wonderful programs uh, that are intended to be educational and informative and based on lifestyle. Downton Abbey, of course, Mm. is on PBS here in the States nice yes yes,
1: and one of the other shows we're very proud of Downton Abbey as uh, as I'm sure you know hence the mention but uh, I've been to all the film sets in the UK because we're such a small island (laughs) not because I watch it (laughs) uh, yeah no very 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 popular show here in the UK there's um, every couple of years there's another fight for which TV channel or platform is gonna gonna host the show so yeah they're very popular yeah, that's just it. So PBS has it here in the States. And another program
0: on PBS is called Antiques Roadshow. And basically it's a program where folks go around and uh, they bring in all kinds of antiques and collectibles and try to talk about like the origins of those and what they would be priced at today if they would be sold on an open market. And I was watching that program one night, and they were talking about the provenance, the story, the origin of a particular piece of art. And I thought, wow, that's a really great word. And I thought it made a lot of sense. And said, in terms of telling our American story and our story about entrepreneurship and our story about, trying to capture the American dream and growing a small business is something that's recognized
1: worldwide. So I just thought I'll fit
0: American Providence and, and they're the name and the company was born.
1: I love it. I, I, I just, I always love the fact when there's a story behind something. To give you a really simple example, is when I found out that the, and I was quite young at the time, when I found out that the apple logo has a bite out of it because it means temptation, there was just this like brain moment of oh my, this genius! Why why have I never noticed that? I just thought it was a slightly different shaped apple with almost like a tick on the top, which is a whole other way of <laughs> I, the way I perceived it. But uh, now I think it's, it's, it's such a powerful story, and I think certainly like the provenance thing. The first thing I said when you when you mentioned about you know the kind of roots of America. I thought to myself, well, people were probably making their own deodorants and stuff way back when, you know, hundreds of years ago when America was actually founded. And so I think, yeah, there's a whole interesting part to that, which is fascinating.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just it. You look at uh, some old pictures from folks that would be our grandparents or great-grandparents. A lot of those folks had porcelain skin, and basically they were coming up with their own remedies, their own concoctions to take care of their skin. It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution, the Chemical Revolution, that we were bombarded with all these products that contain all kinds of harsh stuff. So this really is kind of a throwback uh, to products that were made years and years ago that uh, contain minimal ingredients and are very simple formulations.
1: Nice. And so let's, let's go back to the story then. So you guys, you came up with the concept for the business. You started making the products. How did you start selling them beyond friends and family? Like what was the first thing? Did you start the web store? Did you just chuck them up on Amazon and see what sold? Like how, how did you actually get started in that first, first little phase?
0: Well, we were a little bit different and that was very intentional. Back in 2015, we realized that there are a lot of companies that were launching by basically raising funds and kicking off a very expensive digital marketing campaigns to reach their customers. And for me, that just didn't seem like the right approach. I thought that we could grow a business in a more authentic, a more personable way. So uh, the first three years, we really focused on building our relationships with our brick and mortar retail partners. So by way of example, Mondays, I would typically load up my truck with a whole bunch of samples. I would have a predetermined route and I would just hit the road. I would go and I would stop in at every grocer, every pharmacy, every chiropractic office, every independent market I could find and just hand off. Uh, A handful of samples and I would tell the buyers or the owners or the managers, Hey, here's the deal. Here's a sell sheet. Uh, Here's some of our products. I want you to try these out and then tell you what, I'm going to either stop by in a couple of weeks. Maybe I'll call email. We'll have a quick conversation and see if this is something you want to carry in store. And for me at that point, I had pretty tremendous success. I actually got into about nine out of 10 stores I approached. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because it was such a novel idea. The fact that you had the founder of a company that was actually willing to take the time and go out and meet these folks where they were at, pitch products, and put them on a shelf. So yeah, the first three years, we really grew through our brick and mortar partners. Then back in 2018, uh, we did our uh, initial seed round where we took on our first funding, first institutional funding from a couple offices here in the Midwest. And by doing that, that really launched us into the ecom space, uh, because at that point, I felt like we had a recognized brand, at least here in the Midwest. And it would be great to pair that with ecom. because, you know, you can't have just one that stands alone. I really think to have a successful business, it needs to be omnichannel. You need mm-hmm. to have your brick and mortar support your e-com sales and your e-com sales support your brick and mortar sales. You know, sure. People have such small spans of attention at this point that they need to see a brand over and over again at different locations before it really clicks that, hey, this is a reputable brand and this is something I should be using or supporting and now is the time to purchase. You know, They used to say that you needed to see a brand seven times for it to really sink in because of just the nature of how we've changed as humans. I think now you need to see something 20, 25 times before it really kicks in and you recognize it. So, yeah, we were pretty intentional about doing the brick and mortar thing first and then transitioning to to e-com when we thought that it made sense.
1: No, I think it's certainly a good way to start. And I think most businesses I know, when they first started, it was what I call hard graft. So you going out to those pharmacies, that is the hard graft approach of finding clients. For me, it was I was going out doing that. And sometimes, well, I say sometimes I spent a majority of my time sitting in my bedroom with a small VoIP phone when VoIP first came out, just phoning businesses, (laughs) being like, can I do this thing for free? And if you like it, I'll carry on doing it. And so I think it's certainly a good way of getting the word out there to get started. But as you rightly said, at some point, you've got to think about actually scaling the business up. So having 20 or 30 pharmacies, there's a limit on how many pharmacies you can get your product to. It's also on a shelf of products. Uh, There's no brand awareness. There's obviously challenges behind all of that sort of stuff. And there's also a limit to how many pharmacies and grocery stores you can actually go out and reach before you need to hire other people to do them. And it's quite a boring job for them versus, as you said, then starting up e-commerce, reaching out to Amazon, that sort of thing. Are you like a lot of stores that, that we come across where Amazon you sort of overnight, you suddenly get it to work. It won't be instantly, but you suddenly get to work at a point. And then you almost feel like you've got this issue of Amazon's making us so much money, but we're chucking out such a big cut to Amazon. And our website in comparison is so small. Is that, is that the sort of equation you guys found or was it, was it quite different for you? Yeah,
0: Amazon is kind of a necessary evil. And I'm going to have to explain exactly what that means. Mm. So for us, when we first launched on Amazon, we were managing ourselves, managing it in-house. And what we found was, yeah, that was moderate, but it wasn't as successful as we knew that could have been. Our Amazon sales actually really started to take off once we hired our first management agency to actually run our campaigns and our ads and everything else on Amazon. You have to realize that outside of Google, of course, Amazon is now a search engine. People are going on Amazon, not just to buy products, but also to research products. You know, a lot of folks jump on Amazon and just to read the reviews. It doesn't matter if they're going to buy a product on Amazon or not, but they're looking for more information. They're looking for reviews and reputational stuff and to determine what they're going to purchase. So for us, our Amazon was it was just an awful awesome ran for the first couple of years and then when we hired our first agency that's when it really took off and as we've kind of grown through amazon we've transitioned to agencies as well there are some agencies that do a really nice job of setting up amazon and getting you off the ground and then other agencies that do a really nice job of scaling mm. My advice to anybody with Amazon is, hey, uh, if you're really serious about it, if you really want to see growth on Amazon, you need to hire an agency, a growth agency, to really help you out. Because there are folks out there who are experts and who can execute campaigns and and ad strategies much better uh, than you can as a novice.
1: I think it's interesting as well, just going through the the cycles of different companies. I mean, myself as a we don't do Amazon, but we do other services. It's very similar, I think, in the approach of saying, well, there's some companies that are good good for launching your business. There are other companies that be better at launching other businesses. And then again, once you get running, there's you know we we as a company we have a minimum amount that we would work with on any advertising. And then there's also, we don't publicize this, but there is a maximum amount. There's an amount where we get to where it's like, okay, the workload is now too much for us or the spend on Google ads, it's too much. And actually what you then start to go through, which I know is absolutely the case in Amazon, is you then start needing things like an advanced automated billing system. So we as a business are bringing that in at a certain point. So then we'll kind of cross that chasm and be that later agency you need to go from good to great. But certainly necessary evil is exactly right we we've got quite a few clients at the moment who one of them they can they can turn them um, like half a million pounds in a single day on amazon in the uk alone selling products wow. on their website we've we've just launched a new site we've managed to get their website revenue from a hundred thousand a month <laughs> compared to half a million a, in a day in a single day at times from a hundred thousand a month we're now up to four hundred thousand a month so we're growing the website like crazy to the point where the business plan that they've got now says, okay, email repeat orders starts to kick in as well, which is cool. The volumes have just been too low to justify any energy on that when you make some changes on eBay or Amazon and you've got yourself another, you know, 300, 400,000 pounds. See, yeah, it's, it really is a necessary evil. And I think it's certainly necessary to get revenue in. And I think certainly if you're manufacturing your own products, which we'll talk about in a minute as well, if you're making your own products, I'm assuming you've got good margins to be able to push that onto Amazon versus... There are so many dropshippers. I mean, how many how many companies can you buy a phone charger or a phone case from on Amazon? Probably less than you think, but there are still thousands of them. And they're all dropshippers, and they don't have a USP, and they don't have the margins to support actually competing with someone making their own products. I think it's interesting. Tell us about the product, then, in, in terms of manufacturing it. So how important would you say, and it's a very loaded question, but how important <laughs> would you say manufacturing and owning your own supply chain is When looking at competitors and that sort of thing,
0: I think it's extremely important. And that is one of the points of differentiation. I mean, you mentioned Amazon and and drop shippers. And there used to be a point, you know, and you probably know this much better than I do, let's say eight to 15 years ago, uh, drop shippers could make a lot of money. Uh, They could basically source products from China and just resell them on the Amazon platform. Amazon is really kind of, Cut down on that and tried to limit that to be more beneficial towards manufacturers. So for us making our own products, of course, we control all of our own costs, all of our own outputs. Even with COVID, we haven't had any significant supply chain disruptions. Knock on wood, hopefully that continues. But for us to be able to, to source our own products and list them ourselves makes a huge difference in terms of the margins and the revenue that we're able to create. For us, it really has been one of those cases where we've been very aggressive with our map policy and trying to eliminate resellers and making sure that people don't come across our products somewhere else and then resell them on amazon so we actually do a lot of enforcement work there if you take a look at our account you'll see we have a handful of of negative reviews and unfortunately Mm -hmm. those are all related to resellers Um, i don't think the general public realizes that when you jump on amazon to buy a product there is a chance that you're going to buy from a reseller rather from a manufacturer So I always preach to folks when you jump on Amazon, don't just look for the lowest price. Uh, You need to make sure that you know where your products are coming from. If they're coming from a reputable source or if they're coming from a third-party seller or some other kind of shadow company, because all the issues we've had with Amazon have been related to third-party resellers. So we try to clarify that as much as possible and make sure that, hey, if you're buying our products on Amazon, be sure
1: you're buying them direct from American Providence. I was gonna say exactly on the same note, for example, in my business, we only use Apple computers. We just find Mac is the fastest thing for multitasking, doing crazy amounts of spreadsheets on Google Sheets via Chrome, all that sort of stuff. So we only use Apple products. But after so many bad experiences with Apple themselves, we've actually done the opposite and gone, we'll only buy Apple, but they'll only buy buy Apple from a, um, a certified reseller of Apple.
0: Mm-hmm. Just
1: because I mean, for example, there's a company called PC World in the UK. And if you have an issue with a laptop, they resell PCs, Macs, um, Chromebooks, all the rest of it. But if you have an issue, they will either fix the issue or replace the device same day for the first two years you've got it. Wow. And as a business, I totally subscribe to that. And not only that, it costs the same as if you buy it from Apple. We've had a few laptops break over the years, as you can imagine. We've got lots of computers here. And whenever we've had an issue with an Apple computer and tried to send it to Apple you have to wait in the UK three to five weeks to get an appointment to see someone who will then confirm it's broken. Then you have to wait a few more weeks before you can then actually take your laptop in to have it repaired. And if it's the same day repair, you have to drop it off in the morning and pick it up again in that afternoon. And if it's not same day, you have to come back on a different date. And sometimes they'll say it's two days and it takes two weeks. The whole time I've got an employee not working. Wow. That's brutal. So Exactly. So we've just gone down the route now of, right, PC World it is, it's a fix or replace same day. So if somebody's laptop breaks, I just say, look, get in the car, drive down to the shop, take the laptop. And they, they don't even need any proof of purchase. They just check the serial number and go, yeah, this was purchased here and off we go. And I think, yeah, I think that that's one of the only cases, which is why I've mentioned it, one of the only cases where I would disagree and say, don't buy direct. I think the rest of the time, as you say, I think find the actual brand if you can. Certainly with Shopify and the rise of the shop app, as well, mm-hmm. which manages your payments and deliveries as a customer. The rise of the shop app means I can buy from Shopify stores ridiculously quickly. And actually going direct to the store, I always find their postage, the packaging, all of it is all so much better than if you go from a reseller, because the reseller just have boxes to put any old things in. Whereas the brand themselves, they design their packaging just for those products. Plus the the discounts, loyalties and as as we say, if, if one of the products arrived broken and they call you up, you will then say, yeah, absolutely fine. Send us a picture so we can just check and we'll send another one out or whatever your customer service policy is. But at the same time, I think if you were to buy from a reseller and something was broken, they would be very difficult and say, well, prove it to us. Because if we send another one out, we've had to pay a lot of money for those products in. Whereas you guys haven't. You've manufactured them. So you've got the margin to make that decision. And you're worried about brand awareness. Whereas the retailer are mostly just worried about making as many dollars as possible.
0: That's just it. I mean, so for every one of those negative reviews, I reach out personally. And I think that's where we really excel in terms of communicating with our customers. Mm -hmm. And that personal touch, that authenticity, you know, it's coming from us. I don't think there's a lot of companies out there that are similarly situated. You know, if you think about cosmetics and you think about the type of companies that are out there, I can't think of too many that have a single individual that actually stands behind all the products and is willing to go out there and communicate directly with their consumers. I and mean, that's something that we do all the time, either through podcasts, video chats, social media messaging, email. I mean, you name it. Every time we try to communicate with our customers, there is a heartfelt, direct message from myself Trying to reach out the folks that have supported us and been so kind over the course of the past six years. So I think that's where we really differ. You know, instead of having this kind of corporate message that's based on selling products, it's more or less a relationship from a friend to a friend. You know, the, all of our messaging is kind of in this tone that we're in this together, or we're here for you, we're trying to help you lead a better life, we're trying to help you have more confidence in yourself and how you look, smell, and appear to all your friends and colleagues. Mm. So for us, when it comes down to communication,
1: it's always very direct and uh, kind of the
0: tone is, yeah, from one
1: buddy to another. Nice. I I really, really like that. And I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. We've never discussed on the podcast about customer service and in terms of outsourcing it. And we all know who those brands are, or or you know when you're on live chat or something or an email talking to somebody who's clearly not part of that business. So the person you're talking to, their job is to get rid of you and not give you anything for free, like a refund or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Versus when you're talking to somebody who says, hey, I'm the founder here. I'm really, like for example, a pair of shoes I bought ages ago. And I've tried not to give this example too often recently, because when I bought these shoes a year ago, I kept talking about this amazing Shopify store called Tropic Feel. And I had, I think it was, I think it was one of the co-founders eventually emailed me. And what had happened is my product hadn't arrived. So I contacted them and said, look, I know COVID's going on. Could you just trace it for me and just let me know if it has been a delay? It's been like two weeks. And they then came back and said, we can't find it. So we're going to send another pair out. And then two pairs arrived. So I then contacted them and said, was this deliberate? No one communicated this. Would you like, they're quite expensive. You know, they're not sort of 20 pound shoes. They're a hundred pounds. Would you like the pair back? And what I didn't want to do is start wearing them and then find out they did want the back eventually or whatever. Um, And they came (laughs) back and eventually said, no, no, you can keep them. And we're really sorry for the problems you've had. We both lost your initial delivery and then accidentally sent two pairs out afterwards. We are really sorry. This is not a normal reflection of our customer service. We've given you two pairs of shoes and here is a 40 pounds off voucher off your next purchase. Now it wasn't all the money that they had given me and the free shoes and whatever. And they deliberately sent me two styles of shoes as well. They weren't a carbon copy. One of them clearly was, was an error and I didn't even like them. So I wrapped them up and gave them to a good friend for his birthday. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's just the fact that they, their communication as soon as I did reach out and say, I think there might've been a problem. They were straight on it. Their first message said, thanks so much for reaching out. I've had a quick look and I can't see where the issue is here. Please leave this with me. I will update you within 24 hours. Yeah please please know that i'll I'll come back to you then sort of thing and then she came back to me i think it's about eight hours later so i've managed to track down your delivery it has been lost the courier has actually got no trace of where that product is and it is definitely not still in transit we will send out another item for you and we've bumped up the delivery we'll try and get it to you tomorrow if we can obviously covid permitting because it was during lockdown but I just thought that the, again, it was like the speed of the communication, the fact that they managed my expectations of when to hear back and it, they came actually came back to me a lot earlier. We do similar things as a business as a result of all of us experiencing stuff like that. We might say to a client, like, this is going to take three months and we do it in one and a half. Yep. Just because we've then got that breathing space to change things before we send it if we need to. And then if something's wrong, we might even position that project to say, well, Actually, yeah, we said it was going to be three months, one and a half months. We've done it and we still got a bit of time left so we can make some tweaks to it as well. Let's run through it, see what you like, see what you don't like and see if we need to modify anything at all. And so I think, again, it's that whole customer service piece. It's just about getting it absolutely right. But have you ever experienced or have you guys ever played with outsourcing customer service just so that you've got somebody on live chat all the time or getting another company to to play with emails? Or have you always done it direct?
0: We've always done it direct. And the funny thing is uh, those groups, we all know who they are. Mm. uh, They reach out to us probably, gosh, uh, once a week, maybe once every other week pitching their services. And it's the same thing again and again and again. We're very deliberate about our customer service. If you take a look at our website, we actually have our email and our phone number direct to the office right there on our front page. I firmly believe having that information readily available lends itself to the legitimacy of the company. There's nothing that irritates me more than, like you said, if I buy a product from a a company online, Uh, there's an issue. I go back to their website and I can't find any type of contact information where you have to dig and dig and dig until you finally find an email for an outsourced customer service solution. Uh, That's just stupid. So we take the exact opposite approach. If you need to get in touch with us, either via email or on the phone or social media, we are always accessible. We're always checking that. That's something we're committed to. And I think, and this is probably something to, for some companies to, to consider. Our customer service calls actually went down when we first made our phone number available right there on our front page. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. And I think it's just when people see that, again, it lends itself to legitimacy. People recognize, oh, well, this is a reputable company. If they're willing to put their contact information right here front and center, they must have a great product. They're not trying to hide anything. So again, I don't know, that's just anecdotal. There's probably studies that could be done in terms of how that lends itself to consumer confidence, but uh, it definitely has worked out for us.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because it reminds me of an example somebody mentioned at a conference years ago for quite a large UK retailer. I think they sell in Europe as well. They basically said like, look, we were struggling for months internally with our finance department to convince them that we needed to add free returns as a big USP at the top of our site. All our competitors have it, and we think we're losing out on sales as a result. And of course, finance said, well, we can't do that because everyone will just order 50 products and send 49 of them back, and it'll all go wrong. So they said, well, can we just do it for one week? And if it's a complete... And we'll review at the end of the week, and if it's a complete failure, and we've got returns coming in like mad, then we'll stop it. And if it's inconclusive, we'll run it for another week, and then we'll check it again. And so they put free returns, limited time only... The conversion rate shot up and not the percentage because they now had more orders but the actual volume of returns dropped exactly what you were just saying about legitimacy mm-hmm. it was like they think actually people are making more dedicated purchases because they trusted the brand more rather than getting loads of returns and people are like, well, I'll just order five products and send four back. They think it actually encouraged a new type of customer to purchase from them on the basis of, this is all fine, I can send it back. My biggest thing with returns that I find, especially with clothing or anything that requires size, is when you're buying it online, chances are one in 10 items at least, maybe more, you will have to send back. My wife would probably say it's more like seven in 10, just because we're slightly less... I mean, if I have a jumper that's too big, I'll say, no, no, it's baggy fit. Whereas she'll say, no, it's the wrong jumper and (laughs) send it back. But one thing that always drives me mad is when you send a return back and there's no option on the return form to ask for a different size. Mm. And I think that's something that is a... Because as soon as you return it, if there's no option to get a different size you're going to return that item and you're not going to get another one. So you're, you're basically saying to your customers, if you return, you get a full refund. And then if you buy again, you have to pay for delivery again if, it, if there's a payment for delivery, which is just not, this is not good customer service. When actually, if you've got a good, and we talk about this a lot, if you've just got a good, decent product in the first place, if someone's going to return it, they might say, no, this is a really good, decent product. I do like it. It's just the wrong size or it's the wrong fit or it arrives slightly broken so I can return it And it put that on my return form I put in with the free return to say it was broken or it was a wrong size or whatever. And what would you like us to do? And you tick the box for I would like a replacement. And a few days later, replacement turns up. That's the fastest way to U-turn a bad situation. Whereas if you force them to make a return, the only way now that the retailer is going to keep their money is if the customer, as if by magic, goes back on the website, finds the right product and gambles that the next size is going to be correct. So you actually lose out on the sale, which I think is a really important um, really important point to make as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to give customers options.
1: And if you don't do that, yeah, certainly you're going to lose out on some revenue down the road. Exactly, exactly. So moving on then from kind of customer service and communication, tone of voice, that sort of thing. One thing we often talk about, and I, I mentioned to you previously, it'd be good to cover this briefly on today, is how do you guys go about making customers feel valued? And I know there's a multitude of things of, off the back of value, but... Be interested to get your thoughts. Like how do you make them feel like they're part of the family, apart from just the ones that have gone to customer service and you've you've used an amazing tone of voice with? Yeah, well, we have a, a loyalty program, which I'm a huge fan of. Mm. And uh, that's something
0: that we launched, gosh, uh, during the early days of COVID here. It's called the Pit Crew. So basically, if you're a member of the pit crew, with every purchase, you accumulate points, and then you can redeem those points for products down the road. So uh, just a way to incentivize folks to, to purchase more products and to try other products as well. The other thing that we do in terms of showing our, our customers value is if they sign up for our email lists or our text lists, they're the first ones to find out, of course, about kind of exclusive deals or limited time offerings or things of that nature. So uh, for folks that are brand loyalists, we try to do everything we can to provide them with unique opportunities that aren't available to the general public. The other thing that we do, of course, we support folks. Uh, So if we've got folks that are looking to grow their own social media, uh, of course, we'll tag them, we'll collaborate with them, we'll run promotions, you name it. We're always trying to help folks kind of grow their own personal brand. And if we can be a part of that, uh, we try. So we're always kind of reaching out, always communicating. Social media engagement, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's tough to measure the financial return in terms of social media engagement. It's one of those things where you just kind of have to have faith in the process and realize that, hey, if we're engaging with this person or this group of people down the road, they're going to introduce our brand to their larger audience. And hopefully that leads to some type of significant financial return for us as a company. And, you know, investors, they hate that when you can't come back with firm measurables, but it's just uh, it's
1: playing the long game. And being available, we've certainly had um, clients in the past that uh, have emailed us first thing in the morning and saying, "What did you guys do? We're flooded with orders. We can't keep up. Can we turn the Google Ads off?" And we're like, "What? Like it's all on kind of daily budgets. Uh, we haven't really changed anything." And then we go and look on their website and check out yeah. their referral traffic today, and it's like one famous person's tweeted them because they wore their sunglasses somewhere and everyone's like, what sunglasses are they? Or someone was showing a little snapshot of their kitchen and they said, oh, where did you get those cabinets from? They're gorgeous, you know? Um, and they just say, Oh, they're from this one. And there's like thousands of people liking that comment or, or another post going, everyone's asking, so these are my cabinets. And it's like, everyone's just going and buying them and they sold out quickly. And we've certainly seen that in the past, but you've just touched upon the bane of my life, mm-hmm. which is attribution. And a lot of our listeners will know I've been mentioning attribution for months now And I am, I've been holding off and holding my breath on this. (laughs) We're going to run an attribution podcast very soon. And I've asked four guests if they can come on and talk about it. And they've all said no, (laughs) just to give you a scale of, just because it's so complicated. But the the one I think we're going to go with, which I'm very excited about, I I won't mention their name yet because we've not signed any paperwork, but they're from quite a large global retailer, online only. And, yeah, they talk about attribution all the time and exactly what you've just said. How do you attribute all of that Facebook activity to actual sales? And what some businesses do is they split their marketing budget and they say, right, this percentage, we're just going to splash. And it is splash on brand. And we're going to monitor that by how many visits we get to the website direct because we know they're definitely returning visitors because you can't find a website you don't know, or you can't go to a website you don't know, Um, we'll attribute it to brand search on Google. So we'll monitor how many people go to Google and type our name in every month. So we'll actually monitor the search trends on that keyword itself. And if we've got any brand PPC, we'll monitor that. And also monitor how many followers we have on social. But followers are always coupled with engagement. We don't want dormant followers. We don't want people that just want to see pretty products on their feed. We want to see customers that could actually buy from us one day, or even best than that, people who know people who would want to buy from us. So they'll like and share our posts. There's nothing worse as a customer when you look at a brand's social media and you go on their Instagram and it's like, wow, these guys have got half a million followers and a blue tick. They're smashing it. And then you look at like the first post and it's got 10 likes. Mm-hmm. And you think, okay, that one could be new. And you go to the next one, it's got 20 likes. And you go to the next one, it's got 12 likes. And you're like, hang on a minute, there's half a million <laughs> people. But none of them are engaged. And that yeah. really is a worry. And sorry, I meant to say it doesn't have the blue tick. So it's huge following, no blue tick. And you think, have they bought these followers? Or is this just customers that have started following them and they're not? not actually engaged or, you know, there there are definitely problems around that sort of thing. And so, yeah, the actual attribution is so, so difficult. And that's why some companies have just basically got the butter knife out and gone, nope, we'll put that percentage to brand and we're not really going to monitor much. And then this percentage has to deliver X. And what you normally do is go, if this percentage delivers X in terms of actual ROI from Google Shopping or whatever, then we know we're making enough profit to cover the other 30%. So we are covering all the bases there's always that pain of just what if all your social media activity is driving like a massive percentage of sales, you just don't have the tracking to know that's really really dangerous when it comes to decision making.
0: That's just it, and you've just identified a multi billion dollar business. If you can figure it out,
1: <laughs> <laughs> some tools are getting pretty close. Facebook Pixel, for example, is an absolute liar, in my opinion. Yeah. Facebook Pixel will tell you that if anybody has seen a Facebook ad at any point or clicked on a Facebook ad, and then if they purchase, at any point, Pixel claims full responsibility for it, which is obviously not going to be true for every order. So uh, so yeah, that's all good fun. So flipping that on its head then, we're talking about social and attribution. How do you guys attract new customers then? Is it is it a mix of all these different brand activities and then web traffic goes up? Or do you do some stuff that's much, much more specific, like actual PPC campaigns, reaching out to customers, etc.? It's a mix of everything.
0: We're one of those groups that uh, we don't put all of our eggs in one basket. We like to spread out a little bit. And there's certain things, of course, we do in-house and uh, other things that, of course, we rely on agency partners for. One of the things that's been most successful for us in terms of gaining new customers and new followers is <laughs> this is going to sound goofy, but just uh, DMing folks on Instagram. Oh wow, folks are—I don't want to say mega influencers or macro influencers, because just like you said, those folks, they don't have a lot of engagement, but some of these micro influencers, these folks that have between 10 and 50,000 followers. And if you jump on any of their accounts and you see that they've done product placement before, uh, we've got someone in staff that basically just does a direct DM and says, Hey, we noticed that you've been supporting products. Can we send you some free products or feature that you'll share on your social handles? And a lot of times these folks will work in exchange just for free product because they're not at that scale where they have a core Hundreds or millions of followers, or they're going to demand these outrageous fees. But yeah, if they're in that sweet spot between 10,000 and 50,000 followers, their engagement is typically much higher than some of these macro influencers. So if we can get products in their hands and have them showcase our products in a favorable way to their followers, hey, that leads to sales for us. So that's one way we've done it. Um, Prior to COVID, we did like a, a lot of uh, trade shows and conventions, and even some like in-store demonstrations, just to get in front of people and talk about our products. And I hope those days are returning. But yeah, we run the full gamut from all kinds of in-person stuff to all kinds of online campaigns, and just to get eyeballs on our brand.
1: Nice, nice. I, l- I love the fact as well. It's not the traditional stuff. As somebody who works on the traditional stuff. All day, every day. It's, it's nice to hear there are alternatives. And it it sounds to me like the, the kind of DMing and reaching out. That's definitely got massive, massive hallmarks of what you started off telling us about going to local shops and just saying, here's our product. Do you want to stock it? Sort of thing. And it's interesting how you've kept that same mechanism. You've almost just gone to a completely different type of person and in a digital space, which is very interesting.
0: That's just it. I think that one on one, that human connection, that uh, effort to be relatable. I think it pays off. I think people are still looking for connection and they still want to get to know an individual and a company before they put their full support behind it. So anything we can do to be real and authentic and reach these people where they're at, the better off we're going to be.
1: And and just before we finish up then, why don't you tell us, what would you say is the most important thing if you could nail one thing for customers? And I get there's the whole journey, but what, what's the one most important thing for customers that you guys are like we do that. It just works. Customers love it. It's the most important thing. It keeps them engaged or attracts new customers. What would that one thing be? Don't be a jerk. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty simple. I mean, uh,
0: we've got folks that are huge brand advocates. And of course, uh, we treat treat them with that same kind of respect and offer them free products and benefits. And then the folks that may have an issue with our delivery or even our products, you know, there's no point in, in being nasty about anything. And we've had folks that have tried our products, and for one reason or another, they haven't worked for them, but they've still left us shiny reviews. They said, hey, uh, my body chemistry may not work well with this product, but I tell you what, their customer service and the way they responded to my needs was top-notch. I'll support this company. I'll promote this company. And so realistically, you know, my grandfather, going back to our, our farm roots as a family, he always said that kindness matters. Yeah, And I firmly believe in that. Treating folks, not as customers, but again- as friends and folks that you lean on, uh, I think it serves us well. And the other thing that that I preach all the time, if we're talking about customer relations and, and easy access, Shopify, Shopify, Shopify. Anybody who is serious about running business on an e channel shopify is the way to go um, the access to analytics information is far beyond and above the information analytics offered by any other platform so yeah if you're serious about it to e-com and launching a business get on shopify 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 i'll preach that all day long every day
1: <laughs> i'm glad you said that because we didn't sign up with shopify because it's the latest trend It really is the platform. I think most people listening today are listening because we're called Winning with Shopify. So hopefully everybody's already signed up and and on board with that. But yeah, I just think that the ease of technology, it has some limitations. And I think what's going to be really interesting is to see if there are any kind of big competitors that come out of the woodwork to compete with Shopify. But again, like we were saying before we started, one of the biggest limitations for SEO people like me is, well, you can't access certain files. in my experience they're the files that always go wrong and always break the site and then you've got you you haven't even got a website let alone any seo and so i think yeah i think they've got a really good balance actually between locking down enough stuff and letting you access all the things you actually need to run a business you know they do the servers we also in the uk we had some of the guys from shopify uk themselves on the podcast before christmas they had a 100 uptime over black friday Wow, 100 not a single shopify store in the uk had it went down because of server issues or anything like that at all, which again, I think just it speaks volumes. You only need to be on a bad hosting platform on Magento for a week to completely relate to the statement of 100% uptime. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Cool. Well, look, Kyle, it's been great to have you with us today. Really, really appreciate your time. How can people get in touch with you? They can reach out
0: to me directly. I'm an open book. So it's just kyle at americanprovenance.com for email. If somebody wants to talk on the phone, yeah, my personal number, 608-338-5953. You can follow me on social media. on Kyle LaFond at Instagram and on Facebook and at American Providence on both Facebook and Instagram as well. And finally, a LinkedIn, Kyle Athan, founder of American Providence. I'm more than happy to talk to anyone about uh, building a business relationship.
1: Cool. Well, that's the first time someone's put their cell phone on the podcast. So uh, <laughs> yeah, if you could all call that right now, that'd be great. Great to have you on, Carl. And I think just everything we've been saying about brand, even the fact you've finished that off with your mobile number and personal email, I think is absolutely brilliant. I think it's exactly the way people, uh, people should be when they're running a business, being available to your customers. So thank you so much again for joining us today. Absolutely, Nick. Thank you. I appreciate it. Cool. And for everybody else listening, we've got a very exciting series starting off next week. I'm not going to say anything. You can just see the title next week when it's launched. Thanks for tuning in today. Make sure you go and check out our website. I said last week, please drop us some feedback on the website at winningwithshopify.com or just search Winning With Shopify on Google and you can find the website alongside Spotify and iTunes, all that sort of stuff as well. But yeah, if you can reach out to us and just let us know what you think of the podcast, any particular challenges, questions you've got, I will then personally go out and find some guests and bring them on the podcast so that you guys can uh, get the benefit from that. So thanks for joining today. It's great to have you all with us and we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter for exclusive offers at winningwithshopify.com.
0: And don't forget to check out our Facebook group by searching for Winning with Shopify on Facebook. Over and out.